This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So from Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. I'm John Plotz, and our RTB virtual guest today is the eminent, indeed many of us feel the preeminent historian of science, Lorraine Daston. So her current role is Director Emerita of the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science, in Berlin, and it's from Berlin that she's joining us today. But over the years, she's taught in many universities worldwide, and her works are too numerous to list here, um, uh, but they include the utterly transformational book, Objectivity, co-authored in 2007 with Peter Gallison, and an edited collection with Elizabeth Lundbuck, Histories of Scientific Observation in 2011. So Rainey, welcome. Thank you, good to be here. The same questions that I'm going to be asking Rainey today also apply to you, dear, dear, dear listeners. So we want to know what sustains you, what engages you, and what pushes and irks and prods you into action. So Rainey, can I just start off with one of those sort of open-ended questions of the books that you're turning to that give you comfort or joy at this moment? With one exception, the books that I'm turning to are either nonfiction or they're poetry. The exception is at the urging of two friends. We formed a virtual reading group and we're reading Henry James's Portrait of a Lady for the nth time together. Oh, oh um, wow, yeah. I should probably say that all three of us have, as it happens, spent a good deal of our adult life as Americans living abroad. So uh, <laughs> Isabel Archer's predicament and Henrietta Stackpole's predicament right. is extremely yeah. resonant to the three of us. Oh, um, I'm so glad that you moment. mentioned but, Henrietta Stackpole because as, as the other American floating abroad, I feel like she gets short shrift when people talk about that book sometimes because yeah, that's great. Oh, absolutely. And of course, you know, in many ways, she's a sidekick who's just waiting in the wings to become the heroine, yes. um, especially for this day and age. So one of the first questions that my friends and I asked ourselves is, what is Isabel going to do with her life? And Henrietta has an answer for that. Yes. <laughs> she knows what she's going to do with her life. So we are, we, we're just at the point in the book where Isabel has turned down Lord Warburton's offer of marriage, more fool she, but yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so, that is that is um, the only the only novel that I have turned to. Otherwise, I've been reading strangely the letters of Pliny the Younger. So oh, wow. I, I I'm not quite sure I, how I stumbled upon these. I I have been teaching his uncle Pliny the Elder, 
in mm -hmm. my class at the University of Chicago this past term. Um, so Pliny the Elder of the natural history, Pliny the Elder, who was an admiral who died spectacularly in the explosion of the eruption of Vesuvius, trying to save friends on the other side of the bay. His, his nephew is not such a colorful figure, but that's exactly why I somehow cherish him at this moment. He's, he's the very model of the good civil servant, the good public-minded civil servant. He spends all of his career trying to keep his head down amongst the nastier Roman emperors of the time. This is the first century of the Common Era. And, and basically keeping things running in a competent and efficient and benign manner. Um, he stands for the virtues of honor, duty, and hard work. Mm -hmm. And frankly, at the moment, looking at the ruins of the state, there's something enormously consoling about reading these quite prosaic letters about you know, another aqueduct built, um, another yeah. road built, things getting done, things not crumbling, yeah. things coming into being and not passing away. So, uh, so and this is, endearing. yeah, this is Pliny the Younger. Is that right? Is that what he's goes no, by? This is right. This is um, exactly, this is his, the nephew, right? Yeah. Is he a naturalist as well or an observer or is he mainly just a bureaucrat? I always thought he was also a, science person, I guess, yeah. He's certainly an engineer. I mean, he uh -huh. is, he, he's the archetypal Roman in that I don't think he's frankly interested in anything theoretical. He's, he's a great lawyer. He is capable of delivering orations, good ones, it sounds like, for seven hours at a stretch. Mm -hmm. um, he is extremely interested in how practical things work. And you can see this in his descriptions of the houses he's having built in Tuscany in the foothills of the Apennines um, or nearer, nearer to Rome. He has very clever schemes for pumping cold water underneath the marble floor so that even on the hottest days of the summer, you have yeah. basically air conditioning. And I guess he's a naturalist in that he loves cultivated land. So he has topiary decorating his villa in, in Tuscany. He loves the weave of vineyards on the hills. Um, yeah. he, loves, he loves the sea. So he's, he's more of an aesthetic connoisseur of nature, of cultivated nature, very Roman again, yeah. not, not savage nature. And then when you're describing Pliny, it does sound like you're describing also something like a flow of like he's got a lot of stories to tell you, or he's got a picture mm -hmm. of a world. So is there, is there a pattern there that you're talking about, um, I don't know, uh, fire hoses of words or something? <laughs> yes, loquacious, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so I think, I think that's a really interesting observation. It's a different kind of, of loquaciousness. Um, so the Pliny is mercifully, I think it would be unbearable if this were not the case, it's divided up into letters and the letters mm -hmm. that have survived. And so it's granular in that respect. Right. Um, and it's, for me, perfect bedtime reading because you can take it like sugar, a lump at a time. Yes. Um, and they're rather small lumps before you, yeah. you doze off. Um, yeah. Henry James, Henry James, in part because I've read this book before, although... I, I realized when I began reading it 
the, the first time I read it was the first time I was in Europe as an undergraduate in college. Wow. So to some extent, what I'm remarking as I reread it is the span of years that separates the person I was then and the person I am yes. now, Yes. many decades um, afterwards. Yes. And also as someone who quite unexpectedly ended up spending most of her adult life in Europe, in rather, Europe. Yeah. Um, wholly unexpectedly. But what I, I think the aspect of Henry James now, which enthralls me, has nothing to do with the plot, which I think is problematic from all kinds of points of view. It's Henry James' reflections upon character and upon psychology mm -hmm. and upon the perversity of psychology. Yeah. Isabel, first and foremost. But Isabel, I realize that what makes Isabel American is not the way in which she is perceived within the English milieu, which is she's charming, she's pretty, she's fresh, she's yes. intelligent and, and yeah. original. None of that. It's her unwillingness to sacrifice for freedom. Mm. So that in a sense, what you might think of as the cardinal American virtue, which is freedom as lack of restraint is personified in Isabel. Um, she has no good reason for rejecting the various proposals she receives. She certainly has nothing better to do with yeah. her time, unlike Henrietta, who actually has yeah. a life and a job. Yeah. Um, no, it's because she realizes quite correctly that the moment she makes such a decision, she will be legally, morally, and also psychologically subject to somebody else's will. Mm -hmm. And that is what she is unwilling to give up. And I suppose in the current moment where our life is one, where the radius of our lives has contracted so radically. So here you, we are in our studies. Yeah. Well, yeah, when was the last time we left our studies? Yeah. I feel like Montaigne in his tower Moreover, I don't know what it's like in Boston. In Berlin, we're allowed a daily constitutional, but yes. that's about it. Um, and moreover, the radius of time has contracted. So uh, we're used to planning our lives years in advance. I'm sure it's the case with you. We think of the courses we're going to teach. We think of the conferences we're going to write papers for. We think of the deadlines we're going to miss. Um, and now, next week, what's going to happen next week? <laughs> um, so it, it, there's something about... Isabel's mulish refusal to give yeah. up that freedom that that really resonates at the moment with me. And it must be, it, it must, he must have in his mind people like his sister Alice, who is being kept on an extremely short leash. Yes. Um, in the way that he and William, frankly, also would have been kept on a short leash had they stayed at home with their yeah. um, domineering father. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I really like that point about the, right, the, the new definitions of freedom that we have at this moment. Like, you know, you were mentioning staying in our study. Like I went out to give blood a couple of days ago and I was like, who would have ever thought that a trip to Boston Children's Hospital to have a needle stuck in your arm would be, you know, like the great yes. excitement <laughs> yes, of right. my day. It's like, a, oh, a I get great to adventure, go out. Right, yeah, that's right, <laughs> exactly. Right, yeah. right. Like, yes, like a, 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 onto a trip to the Alps, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. So, yeah. Ren, can I ask about, in terms of the, the Pliny, I mean, I want to ask you more about the poetry you mentioned, but the Pliny, does it, does it have a vocational appeal to you or is it a non-vocational appeal? 
Is it like, does it, is it, does it help you conceptualize the world sort of in a work, in a working way? Like, do you find satisfaction in it because it fits together with, you know, either work that you're doing or a story that you tell about the ancient world? Or is it more like you like it because it's over there and elsewhere? It's partly a resonance with work that I'm doing in that I, I'm currently writing a chapter of a book, an endless book, an everlasting book on the history of rules, all of them everywhere, always. And the chapter now is on laws, the difference between laws and rules. Wow. And there's one aspect of rules, which is a matter of our daily experience, but I think it's been a matter of, of human experience for as long as there have been explicit rules, which is that once there are rules, people tailor their behavior to meet the requirements of the rules and nothing more than the rules. Right. And I'm thinking a lot about the difference between that situation with which we are all too familiar, in which one satisfies, as it were, the letter but not the spirit of the rules, versus yeah. what it means to have an ethos, an internalized ethos, um, which is not articulated in rules, but perhaps in a vocation. Yes. And, um, Pliny, who is, as I say, I mean, this is the archetypal Roman. And I'm reading a great deal about the history of Roman law at the moment because it is, in the final analysis, everybody's law, um, the model of what the rule of law could be. Yeah. Pliny has, although he is a lawyer, he knows every codicil, every line of the digest, etc. Um, he, his own behavior is regulated by an ethos. Yes. Um, of a, a vocation. And I find that there's something about our algorithmic world which has fortified to the point of suffocation the opposite model, which is uh, working to rule. So, yes. you know, there's a, there's a kind of strike, a kind, I must say it's a genial kind of strike. I think it was invented by the Italians. It was called a white strike, I think, in, yeah. in Italian, in which you don't stop working you work you, to rule. You do everything exactly as exactly as the rule of state, which of course means the whole world grinds to a halt. Yes. And I feel whenever I feel in an online form, I, I feel this, I feel exactly this kind of constricting weight that it, it, it it's demanding that I behave this way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think one appeal of Pliny the Younger is that he's the opposite of that. Yeah. And of course, at the moment, because I feel, I think as um, many people now feel about their government, but perhaps acutely, if you're an American, that there has been a concerted war against that kind of civil servant for decades now. And we are now, you know, he who sows the wind is reaps the we are reaps the whirlwind. We are now reaping the whirlwind as a result. Um, yeah, that we we have, especially in the last three or four years, lost in droves, driven away um, that model of public servant. Right. I, I and it's really interesting what you're saying. I mean, there's so many things that are interesting about what you're saying, including that letter versus spirit distinction, because that's the theological dimension of this, right, like the letter Paul, of the law right, versus the spirit yeah. of the law. But just to pursue yeah. that point, there's an easy way to say that bureaucracy, like like that the 
the civil service is defined by its adherence to the bureaucratic, which would be the narrow rule following rather mm -hmm. than the ethos. But the deeper truth of understanding the governmentality as having that ethos dimension in it, even though it seems to be defined by the set of, you know, the, the promulgated set of laws. That's a struggle. I mean, as a 19th century person, I see the 19th century state struggling with that enormously, mm -hmm. you know, that question of wanting things to be defined by red tape uh, and also knowing that the definition of it actually requires, right, something else, a conception of character. Um, so do you think it's because, I mean, I assume that you're thinking about especially British sources. I am. Because they're an empire. Yes. I mean, they're basically confronting the same problem that Pliny the Younger is, which is the administration of a far-flung multicultural empire. Yeah. Um, which means that you've got to sort of rethink custom, which is if you have been born and bred in a particular place, you know how things are done, you know what you're supposed to do, you know what you're not supposed to do. You've got to make it explicit. Yes. And you've got to somehow distill it for, in the case of you know, the Romans in the first and second century of the Common Era, for every place from Gaul, which is you know, basically parts of the British Isles, yeah. to Syria or, you know, and, and, and beyond. So, and Britain is doing exactly the same thing in the 19th century. They've got to sort of somehow figure out how you have a set of rules that can, because you have to make it explicit. People in India are not going to understand um, the things which people who have been raised in Surrey take for granted and vice versa. And yet they know it won't work, especially long distance, it won't work unless there's this internalized ethos. Totally, but the, the, the only dimension of that that I would also add, and you're right to say I'm thinking about the British case, but I'm also thinking about, you know, the US in a way is an extension of the British case at that moment because the logic of sovereignty in the US states or colonies mm -hmm. is also yeah. an extension of that common law. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the thing I would say about that in terms of the ethos is that if you look at the early 19th century, there's this amazing um, nuanced encounter with cultural difference, which is not always successful. And it's not as if people are bending over backwards to create a kind of cultural relativism within the empire. But if you look like, for example, do you know this book called Settler Sovereignty by Lisa Ford? She compares- No, I don't. So she compares mm -hmm. how the legal codes of Georgia in the United States and New South Wales in Australia, mm -hmm. how they dealt with the fact of cultural difference. And her point is that up until like the 1830s or 1840s, there was no effort to what was called perfect sovereignty, meaning create a sovereignty that would just have a territorial integrity that did not take into account cultural difference. So let, you know, by the mm -hmm. 1830s, which is when in Georgia, the Indian removals hit full force, there's a, mm -hmm. there's a conception of the law as working you know, from the federal government and the same for everybody, which means indifferent to the fate of native people. But up until the 1830s, there is actually flexibility as to, you know, when somebody, when, when an Indian murders another Indian in Georgia, who, what law system prevails? Mm -hmm. When a white person murders an Indian, what law system prevails? Like those debates, that, that, that's an ethos question. It's not a edict question. And right. um, yeah, I'm just very, I just feel like we've, uh, 
you know, we sometimes overstate the uniformity of what the Imperial Project looked like. And it's, it's, it's reassuring to know that like when you dig into the 1810s or the 1820s or the 1830s, there are people who are trying to make different cultural norms fit together. Yeah. I think that's very, I mean, it's very reminiscent of the Roman Imperial Project as well. I mean, one thinks of perhaps the arrogance of when in Rome do as the Romans do, but the, the obverse of that is um, when in Damascus do as the Damascus do. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. So. yeah. Well, that makes me think of Ovid's Tristia, you know, like those exile poems that yes. are so much about mm -hmm. that question of like, yeah. do you, when you change your skies, do you change your soul or not, you know? Who knows? It's a tricky question. You know, and also, also, you know, one thing, of course, the other thing that one learns in reading these letters is how, uh, how, how precarious life was um, if you were a public pers person, um, either a poet like Ovid or um, an official like Pliny, um, which is at a moment at the emperor's displeasure, you terrible things could befall you. And what's so interesting to me is how terrible Pliny thinks banishment is. Yes. That he, he really, he'd almost rather just be beheaded or broken on the wheel or something like this yeah. than, yeah. Than, um, than be banished. Can I just turn us towards the finish line here by, since you did, um, uh, um, so you mentioned poetry early on, you, you, you tempted me to follow up and ask about what poetry you've been reading? Yeah, so, I mean, there, one standard who is a kind of um, emotional anchor for me is, um, and I don't know whether I'm pronouncing this correctly, um, the Polish poet Zbigniew Herbert, mm. um, who, alas, I can only read in translation, I can only imagine how powerful he must be in the original Polish. I yeah. just, uh, it's enough to make one want to learn Polish. Um, and his poems, I, I think what magnetizes me with his poems is a combination of immense learning lightly worn. I mean, the elusive range of these poems is yes. um, mind expanding, the irony, the fine irony, which is always present, but also that the poems, they're never, how to say it, they're never in earnest, but they're always serious. Yeah. And so it, it, it's a tradition of poetry, which I really associate with, with, with Poland, so Simborska. I, I was just thinking of Simborska. Yeah, as I, well. Yeah. Um, but also with Akhmatova and Mandelstam, Joseph Brodsky, it's, it's a tradition of poetry which still sees itself as speaking truth. Yes. So it's not the poetry of subjectivity. Yes. So I, I read a lot of poetry and I, yeah. I, I like lots of poets, but the, most of the poetry that I'm reading these days in English of contemporary poets is of a highly cultivated subjectivity of, yes. you know, of internal states. It is, these are not poems about people's internal states. They are poems about the way the world is yes. in some way. And the other is D.H. Lawrence. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. Um, D.H. Lawrence's poems, especially his animal poems, he has... A lot of his poems are sort of um, bad-tempered. They're jabs at someone or something he doesn't like. But his animal poems are of a kind of incandescent intensity in which he tries to think of himself 
they're a bit like the Ted Hughes poems about animals. Um, I agree. In which I, yeah. he really tries a kind of what is it called psychokinesis, in which you try you know, try to inhabit the soul of another being. Yeah. Um, and he tries this with you know fish with mosquitoes, and they're they're riveting. I mean that you know they hold you wrapped. So. Yeah. I, w- I was just looking to. I can't find them on my computer, but I I. Uh, was speaking with my friend Liz Bradfield yesterday, who's a poet at, at Brandeis, and she was praising a couple of different recent books of octopus poetry. Apparently there's been a real resurgence oh, of- Yes, perhaps inspired by the terrific book by Peter Godfrey Smith about- Other Minds, um, exactly. Other yeah, Minds. I think they're right? not yeah. actually inspired by that, but they are in the same vein. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. because they're a couple of years older, but yeah. Yes, he's 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 one of my heroes. I think his book is amazing. Now, now talk about perspectival suppleness. Yes, I mean, exactly. You know, well, no, that, I one mean, species is too small. Totally. Well, so I'm writing a book about science fiction, and I what he had me early on. You know, there's a line in the first chapter of that book, which is that this is the closest to meeting an alien we're ever going to come. Right. Is to try yes. to think like mm-hmm. an octopus, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Ready? Can I just turn back the point you were making about the publicness of poetry? Reminded me of something else that Liz said. Um, which is that I had asked her about, I basically asked her about lyric poetry versus dramatic and epic poetry. And she said, well, there's another way of slicing up lyric subjectivity, which is to distinguish between the lyric and the bardic. And so she was talking about um, poetry in the Irish or Scottish tradition, which is bardic in the sense that it is outward facing, like it has something Mm -hmm. to say to the world about the world. And Mm -hmm. that sounds to me like what you're describing with Herbert and Zaborskaya. Yeah, and um, you know, it's more obvious in Akhmatova and Mandelstam because um, they are speaking truth to power and, and, and paying the price for speaking truth to power. It's much more subtle with the Polish poets um, yes. who are speaking about truths which are both specific to their predicament. You feel a kind of oppressiveness, yes. of, a kind of political oppressiveness. Yeah. Um, but also because of, especially Zbigniew Herbert, less so Zimborska, because of the elusive range, which is you know, basically all of um, the Western intellectual and literary tradition, um, also setting off cascades of associations over centuries. So um, it, it's very interesting. I, I was raised, you know, I came of age intellectually in a moment of contextualism, of extreme contextualism. And there was a great deal to be learned from that um, about um, the way in which a particular place and time creates its own mode of being. But Herbert is the antidote to that. Yes. So speaking of what we were raised in, you, you know, as soon as you said his name, I remembered that I took an introductory as a freshman or maybe a sophomore, I took an introductory poetry class with Helen Bendler in which oh, she had yes. us read Oh, yeah. The big new Herbert poet poem about the rose with a George Herbert poem about the rose. So she said, we're going to do the story of the two Herberts. So right, right, I, I take Herbert that boy, as a kind right? of anti-historicist yes. move. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I just wanted to mention, are you a fan also of this young Polish novelist, Olga, I'm going to butcher her name, Tukarczuk, who wrote um, uh, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead and... Right. Yes, I've um, I've actually I've actually um, on the recommendation of my daughter, as a matter of fact, just started yeah. that. Um, you know, um, yeah, she she also is remarkable. Um, I mean, at the moment, 
I find, as I, as I said at the outset, um, finding fiction somehow indigestible at the moment. Right. Um, so it's one of the many books set aside for, yes. um, for rosier times. I, I, I can't quite explain to me, to myself, why it's almost as if fiction feels too real. Yes. Um, and that's it, the, the kind of vivacity for which one reads fiction because it presents life in um, a heightened palette and with a kind of accelerated plot. That's, that's just too much now. Life, life yeah. has enough, too much color, too much plot. Right. Um, yeah. to inject more into it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've definitely, I, I'm going to go back to Zimborskaya and I have to look at, I haven't looked at Herbert for years, but I, I really, I, I, I completely agree with what you're saying about that quality of poetry, the poetry that does seem to be about the world at large and then just, but not without forsaking the particular experience of the everyday. And you know, the Stanislaw Lem, the Polish science fiction Oh, the, the great novel. Solaris, yes, uh, right. Yeah, I think Solaris is great that way. And I think his, even his funny books, like the Futurological Congress, uh, you know, oh, he's, yes. a very, he's a very funny writer, <laughs> yeah. but he's a writer yeah. who never lets you forget that we live in a kind of um, total conceptual universe and we live in our bodies, both of those things at once. And I, mm -hmm. I love that insistence. So maybe that is, maybe there is some Polish specificity to that. Um, well, as I said, next project, learn Polish. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Um, well, Rainy, thank you very much. And I'll just quickly say that, recall this book is hosted by John Plotz and usually by the Trollope loving Elizabeth Ferry with music by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, and sound editing is by Claire Ogden, and website design and social media by Kaliska Ross. We always wanna hear from you with comments, criticisms, and suggestions. And if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to share it with friends and to write a review or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. We're just a, a lowly scholarly podcast, so we rely on um, your word of mouth or word of click to make sure that other people can hear us. Um, please check out other books in Dark Time Conversations and also with conversations with such writers as Zadie Smith, Shishen Liu, and Samuel Delaney. So, um, Rainey, thank you very, very much. Um, it was delightful. Thank you, John. It was a real pleasure. And thank you all for listening. Mm -hmm.